So, um, um, who's up for a nice abstract philosophical discussion tonight? Are we, one hand, okay. That's one. Well, unfortunately, that's what I'm going to talk about. Tonight. I'm going to talk about what the church is. And, and this is something that, that people have struggled to define for 2,000 years. Um, what the church is. Let me read what the, what the Methodist Book of Discipline says the church is. It says, the church is, the, is a community of all true believers under the lordship of Christ. It is the redeemed and redeeming fellowship in which the word of God is preached by persons divinely called and the sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's own appointment. Under the discipline of the Holy Spirit, the church seeks to provide for the maintenance of worship, the edification of believers, and the redemption of the world. And then it goes on for another couple of hundred pages. So that's what Methodists say. Uh, Presbyterians used to be a little more clear on this, but we, we clarified things um, a couple of years ago, and uh, we, made our, we made our book of discipline a little more, uh, well, we made it different. And um, so we don't actually begin talking about what the church is. Instead, we talk about the mission of the church. We kind of ask you to hold on. We'll get to the church eventually. So we talk about God's mission, and then we talk about um, uh, the mission of God in Christ gives shape to the life and work of the church. And then we talk about how Jesus is the head of the church, and he has authority, and he calls and equips the church, and um, he gives the church its life, and he gives he is the church's hope, and that Christ is the foundation of the church. And then finally, on page two, we see that the church is the body of Christ. And uh, the Christ give the church all the gifts necessary to be his body. And the church strives to demonstrate these gifts in its life as a community in the world, and so forth. And it goes on to explain the church in terms of, um, in, in, in those terms. So um, uh, if that's not abstract enough for you, I'm sorry, but um, I can't get any more abstract than talking about the church. So I want to talk about something a little more, a little more concrete. What is this? It's a stapler, okay. All right, it it is a stapler, but there's a there's an abstract philosophical principle at stake here. Suppose I told you, suppose I told you that this stapler is not a very good stapler. You ever had a stapler like this? When you put staples in, they don't really come out. It's like gummed up or something. And no matter how many times you take them out and put in fresh ones and clean out the one that got stuck there, they just just perpetually get stuck, and it doesn't work. So my question for you is, is it a stapler? What do you call something that is a stapler that doesn't staple? A a, you could call it a paperweight, you could call it trash. So, so this is a, this is a real philosophical question. The Greek mind, and, and this is largely where, where Western minds come from is, is Greece. Um, our home is in Athens, so to speak. Our intellectual home is in Athens. Athens. Uh, we would say this is a stapler, but it is a flawed stapler. Okay, there is an ideal stapler kind of that exists in the mind of God, and that is what staplers are. And then every physical, tangible stapler is a more or less exact replica of that. And when they become broken, when they become gummed up, they become kind of flawed staplers. But there is still this this ideal stapler that exists only in 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 uh, the philosophical realm. And that is that is the way Greeks think about staplers and, and all kinds of other things. Now, the Hebrew mind is completely different. The Hebrew mind is is very much along the lines of the people, those of you who said you have a paperweight or you have um, a doorstop, right? This is, if it is not a stapler, 
Um, if it does not staple, it is not a stapler. It can be something else, but it is defined not by some philosophical essence, but by what it does. So, for example, um, in two chapters, we just read from John chapter 13. In two chapters, Jesus will talk to his disciples and talk about how they should bear fruit. There's a reason that the Bible is always uh, always on about bearing fruit. It's talking about demonstrating demonstrating your faith by what you do. And the reason is the Hebrew mindset says you are what you do. There is no there is no philosophical essence to you. I'm a good Christian, I just don't act that way, right? That's a Greek concept. And and the 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 Hebrew mindset is if you are a fig tree and you don't bear figs, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, then you're not much of a fig tree, are you? Or as Jesus would say, if you are a, a vine, a grapevine, and you're not bearing grapes, then you're not much of a grapevine, are you? So that's kind of the philosophical mindset of the Bible. And let me tell you how that bears on tonight's discussion. Tonight we are we are uh, celebrating a meal that is derived from the Jewish Passover meal. And the Passover meal was designed to answer the question, who are the Jews? See, there's all kinds of ways you could answer that question. If you think about it, you could say, well, the Jews are, are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a true, true statement. You could say, you could say, the Jews are the descendants of Hebrew slaves. Again, a true statement. You could say, Jews are people whose ancestors received the law at Mount Sinai. And again, these would all be true statements to a Greek. But they are is questions. They say, who are the Jews? And the Hebrew mindset doesn't think that way. The Hebrew mindset says, what do the Jews do? And the answer is they have a ritual meal. The Jews celebrate the Passover meal to remember all those other things. They do something. They don't simply be something. Jews do things because they have a Hebrew mindset. So the Jews are people who celebrate the Passover. It is a ritual meal in which they remember that they were spared God's judgment because of the blood of a lamb. And so we read in our passage of Scripture, God instructs Moses that this is to be a perpetual ordinance for them. God says, this day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. This is who the Jews are. They remember the salvation that God granted them through the blood of the Lamb by eating a ritual meal. In church history, uh, we have struggled historically to understand who the church is. In the early life of the church, uh, many of the theologians who dominated the, 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 the discourse of the church had a Greek mindset. And so as they learned about Jesus and as they became followers of Christ, they struggled to understand what the church was. So they would typically answer questions, what is the church? And they would come up with phrases like, the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. It's a true statement. We, we affirm the idea 
that the church is one. It is a unified thing. There is only one church. Even though we see division, God sees the perfect unity of the church. It is holy. It is set apart for God. It is Catholic. It is universal. Um, it, it extends to all people who put their trust in God. And it is apostolic. It has a mission that God has sent it on. God has apostled the church out into the world. So the Greek mindset says these are things about the church. But over the course of centuries, as the church uh, reconfigured itself, splitting from east to west and then from the, the Catholic and the Protestant tradition, one of the things that was was wrestled with was that definition of what is the church. I mean, after all, we used to meet with them, and now we don't. Are they the church? Are we the church? Are we both the church? Who's the church? They wrestled with these questions whenever the church would would fragment. And there's nothing good about fragmentation of the church, but one of the good things that came about as a result of it is we began to recover that Hebrew mindset. The church is not some abstract, holy, Catholic, apostolic thing, but it is something that does things. The church is defined not by what it is in the abstract, but what it does. So the reformers said the church, and this is echoed in the passages I read from the, the Methodist book, um, the church is, is defined by people who, who preach the word of God rightly, who celebrate the sacraments rightly, and who exercise discipline within the body of Christ. So they came up with these definitions that have to do with, with what the church does. So we could answer the question that way. We could say it is these abstract things, holy and apostolic. Or we could look at it the way that the reformers did and say it is defined by these things that the church does. But there's a better answer yet, and and I'll cut to the chase. It's the one Jesus gave us. See, Jesus said what the church is. So tonight, we're going to eat a ritual meal, and we're going to remember that like those Jews in Egypt, we have been spared from God's judgment because of the blood of a lamb. And we could stop there. We could say we are defined by that thing we do, the ritual meal we eat, remembering the things that God has done. We could do that. Those are true statements. But Jesus gave us a new commandment. Instead of saying, you will eat this meal as a perpetual ordinance for all your generations, Jesus gave us a new commandment. He said to love one another. Now, on the one hand, there's nothing new about that. There's nothing new about the the commandment to love one another. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, perhaps as early as Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. If you remember the story, uh, Cain has just killed his brother Abel, and God says, where's Abel? And Cain says, I'm not responsible for him. He says, am I my brother's keeper? He doesn't love his neighbor. And Cain is judged as much for his his callow attitude toward his brother as for the murder itself. By the time we get to Leviticus 19, it tells us we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the the uh, verse that Jesus quoted when he was asked, what is the great commandment of God? So it's not a new commandment. It's all through the Hebrew Scriptures. But Jesus takes it and makes it a new commandment. Not a commandment of the stuff you're supposed to do normally, but a commandment to define who is the church. Jesus says, by this, 
everyone will know you are my disciples when you love one another. Not because we were saved by the blood of the Lamb, although we were. Not because we eat a ritual meal, although we do. But because we love one another. So what is love? Well, again, the Greek mind says, oh, love is a mini splintered thing. Love is, you know, and we go off into whatever pop culture song pops into our head. We think of love as something that is. But Jesus heads us off at the past and says, I'll tell you what love is. It's just like I did when I cleaned your feet. Love is humble service for the people whom you love. Again, the Hebrew mindset, love is not an is, it's a does. So Jesus gives this example. He's done the same before with his most famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he explains who loves his neighbor, the one who had mercy on him. But with his disciples, he ups the ante. He performs the work of a slave. He takes off his clothes and washes their feet. And you can see dead silence. No one can even believe what he's doing. This is shocking. And finally, Peter, as always, cuts through the shock and says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? How could this be? What's going on here? Jesus says, you'll understand later. And it's not because Jesus is a clean freak. It's not because he's worried about dirty feet. He says, you don't need to bathe. This is not like the the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community that engaged in elaborate ritual baths. Jesus says, no, it's not about the cleaning. Don't focus on that. Jesus says, it is about loving one another as I have loved you. The church is the people who engage in humble acts of loving service for one another. The church is the people who care enough to get involved. I had a conversation this week with the church secretary. She had seen a video about the bystander effect. It was actually a couple of years old. I looked it up on YouTube. But what had happened is some people had staged a kidnapping, a pretend kidnapping in the middle of broad daylight to see who would intervene. And the answer is nobody. Pretty much nobody would intervene. And the reason is because of the bystander effect. The bystander effect is, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're doing. Is this performance art? Is this a real crime? I don't know if I intervene and you're putting on some kind of a show. uh, Are you going to sue me? Am I on camera? I don't want to get involved. I don't care. The church is the place that does not suffer from the bystander effect. The church is the community of people who love one another enough to risk caring for one another. We do this most typically when someone is sick. We visit or we bring food. But it's not just about that. The church is a place where when we are poor, we can say, I've got financial problems. And they won't kick us out because they care. It's not just a place where we can be broken and admit we have messed up our finances. The church is a place where we will risk helping. That distasteful thing, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to get involved. You know, I don't want to tell you how to run your business. I don't want to do that. Here, I'm just going to anonymously give you some money. A church is a place where we actually risk saying, you know, I used to have money problems myself. And here's what I did to get over them. 
Church is the place where we can admit we have an addiction. And somebody can say, you know, I've struggled with that my whole life. And here's how God's helped me. A church is a place where we can say, we've got problems with our relationships. And people care enough to admit that they have too. And that this is what they've done that has been helpful to them. The church is the community that risks humble service. The church is the community that risks humbly admitting our brokenness. Admitting we're not perfect and we need help. Or offering to help without judging in humility. If we are that community, Jesus assures us people will notice. Jesus tells us people are hungry for that kind of community. He says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples. What is the church? The church is the community that loves. Thanks be to God. Amen.